Well, this is your first time here at Hosanna, uh, here in our sanctuary, or if you're joining us online for the first time, we wanna say welcome to all of you. We're so glad you're here to worship with us today. Quick note, we were gonna say this in announcements, but I'll say it right now. Under the balcony right now, the uh, lights aren't working, so if you're sitting in the dark, um, come forward. Yeah, there's light out here. There's light out here. So, um, Or just be comfortable where you're at. Either way is fine, but I just wanted to let you guys know why the lights aren't on back there. But for those of you that don't know, I am Pastor Nathan, and today we are gonna be looking at the seventh of the seven letters to the churches in Revelation the letter to the church of Laodicea, commonly referred to as the lukewarm church. You know, the concepts of self-confidence and self-reliance and positive self-image, these are all huge buzzwords today in our culture. And confidence simply means believing that you can rely on someone or something. You know, we know the ideas of, of, you know, we trust someone that we have or place our confidence in. But the world's definition has, has added to that or changed that, depending on how you look at it, to say that confidence is all about having confidence in yourself. Confidence in your own ability to accomplish your goals and confidence in your own ability to realize your dreams. So in the world today, we see that the rich and the wealthy are often confident in the wealth that they have accumulated through their business acumen. The powerful are confident in the strength or the position that they've acquired through their climbing the corporate ladder or the political ladder. Many are confident in the worldly wisdom that they've gained because of their hard study and their hard schooling and their enlightenment. And yeah, it's popular and it feels good to hear stories of people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, right? I mean, who doesn't like to hear a good rags to riches story because they're so inspiring about what, what people can accomplish. But the issue is a lot of that, specifically from the worldly secular point of view, revolves around self. It's all about me and my power, my accomplishments, my efforts, my goals, my ability. And it's interesting, if you look up all those things I just listed in, in psychological definitions, you'll see that there's another definition for this other than self-confidence. Sometimes it's referred to as selfish ambition. And the ideas of self-confidence and self-reliance, these can be difficult uh, concepts and they could cause problems for Christian believers because for Christians, Confidence does not and should never be in themselves, but always in God himself. The goal of the Christian life isn't selfish ambition. It's not our own personal comforts. It's not our own personal accolades, but it's the glory of God. That's the goal of the Christian life. You know, in Proverbs, the writer warned that we are not to trust ourselves or to trust in our own wisdom but to trust in God alone, in his gifting, in his calling, in his equipping, because God is our confidence. God is our rock, God is our refuge. Paul went on to make a similar point in Philippians chapter three, where he said, if anyone thinks they have ground for confidence in themselves, Paul's like, I got more. And then he goes on to list his pedigree and his upbringing and his family and his training and his accomplishments and even his moral standard which was according to a perverted standard of God, according to man, he listed all of that stuff. He goes, look, if anybody has a place to be confident in themselves, I'm the one. But we all know what he said, right? He said, all of that is trash compared to knowing Jesus Christ. All of that is trash compared to knowing Christ and having his righteousness characterize who I am. Not my pedigree, not my list of accomplishments, but him and him alone. And so the paradox of the Christian life is that when we truly acknowledge our weakness, when we acknowledge our lack, when we acknowledge our, our own inability, it's in that moment that we find that we are the strongest and the most effective for Christ in his kingdom. Because it's in that moment that we rely on God's strength for everything, for everything. And it's in the risen Christ that we are called to have and place all confidence in because it's only through him that we can be saved. It's only through him that we can ultimately find life and life eternal. Now, 
That's not to say that Christians aren't to ever have any confidence um, in themselves or in others or things that they're doing, but that confidence ultimately has to have the right source. The confidence has to have its origin in God himself. And any confidence that we do take in ourselves, our giftings, our uh, things around us, all of that should ultimately flow from confidence in Christ. For the person who's gifted in the Lord to say, I am confident in my gift because it is a gift of God, given by God, ruled by God. It's not about me and my own talent. Does that make sense? So when the source of our confidence comes from anything but Christ, in what we've done, what we have, what we're going to see in the letter today is we ultimately will end up losing our zeal, we will lose our effect, and we lose our ability to see the truth of things. But worse is what we, what we lose is our dependence and reliance on Jesus Christ. And whether we want to admit it or not, losing all of that affects how the unsaved world sees our Jesus. And this is what has happened to the Laodicean church. It's what can happen to us today, but there is hope. There is hope and there is always hope. And today, we're gonna see that Jesus gives direction on how to become effective again for the kingdom if we have strayed into lukewarmness. But first, we're gonna praise his name because he is worthy, he is holy, he is God Almighty. So let's pray, and then we'll worship. God, we thank you so much, Lord, for who you are. You are God Almighty. You are our Savior. Lord, you are the one who paid the ultimate price, died for us, You saved our souls and then you sent your Holy Spirit to seal us, then equipping us to to live the life you're calling us to live, to walk according to your ways, God. You've gifted us with, with abilities and talents, Lord, to do what you're calling us to do, Lord. You work in and through our lives, both in the ups and downs, Lord, but it is all you. And God, our confidence in this world is to be in you and what you've done and what you can do and what you will do. Because, Lord, there is a danger that when we forget that it is you who is our all in all. And we start to play our own song or toot our own horn, Lord, thinking that maybe it is in us. Maybe it is in our wealth, in our stuff, our own abilities, Lord, and that's why things are going well. God, instead of making our witness more effective, it actually cools it off. It causes it to have the opposite effect, which is no effect at all in the world. And Lord, we pray today, God, that if any of us are walking in a lukewarm way, living in a lukewarm way, God, that we would hear you today, that we would repent of what is causing that and come back to you today, Lord, that we would be highly effective people in this lost and dying world for the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Lord, let us have ears to hear you. But first, God, we would just want to praise you. We love you so much. We're so grateful for who you are and what you've done, Lord. And God, worship is one of those ways where we just express that back to you, Lord. And so let this be a time that just blesses you. We love you so much. We thank you for everything. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. So let's read aloud together the words of this prophecy. He says, write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I have become wealthy and need nothing, and you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers. I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Wow. 
wow, that's, that's harsh, right, <laughs> you know? Um, now, the courier that was entrusted by John to deliver this revelation to the churches, and I believe that's how it was done because that's how it was done in those days. Someone would write a letter, they would give it to a courier, and that courier would then deliver that letter to the different churches. That courier was now nearing the end of his journey. If you remember, as we've been going through these letters, his first stop was Ephesus. Then he traveled north to Smyrna, north to Pergamum, and then turned southeast to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and now finally arriving at his final destination, Laodicea. Now I imagine that as this courier was delivering this letter and this letter was read, that he likely tarried long enough at each destination to hear the local body in that area read this letter. And he, as a result of that, I believe he got a really great understanding of the dynamics of these different churches that he was visiting. In Ephesus, they're so zealous for theological purity and, and just so, so intense on being dogmatic with doctrine, but growing coldly indifferent about why theology is important, forgetting that it's about Jesus and loving him and representing him. Smyrna, a place racked with poverty as the result of persecution and suffering, yet standing firm up to Pergamum, a place that was so full of love and so full of compassion, but letting too much moral compromise into the church. Then down to Thyatira, a place that was so vibrant with work and labor and work ethic and industry and that whole idea of growth, which was happening in the church. The church was growing as well, but they were overly tolerant of false teaching that they let into the church as long as their bottom line wasn't affected. Sardis, known throughout the world for spiritual life, but in reality, spiritually dead. And then Philadelphia, so small, so weak and insignificant, yet growing and faithful and diligent in the face of a very hostile world. Now this courier might have thought he'd seen it all, he'd heard it all, but now he comes to Laodicea. Now this letter is the most critical of all seven, and the reasons stem from how the secular culture of the city had affected the church. Laodicea was an incredibly wealthy and active city, probably the wealthiest in the entire area of Asia Minor. They had a booming economy. Now Laodicea was founded in 250 BC on the site of a much older village by a guy named Antiochus II, and he named the city after his wife. So then the city eventually passed into Roman control with the whole of Asia Minor in 133 BC. And so Laodicea was a town that was about 45 to, or 40 to 50 miles southeast from Philadelphia and about 100-ish miles east of Ephesus. So if you traveled east on that road from Laodicea, you would eventually get to Ephesus. But if you went northeast, you went up through the other cities we've talked about. But what's interesting is that 11 miles east of Laodicea was the city of Colossae which is completely unexcavated today. It's just a dirt hill. They just know their stuff under it, but they haven't dug any of it up yet. And it was six, six miles north of Laodicea was a city called Heriopolis, which is still there today under a different name, but you can visit the place. But all three of these cities are referenced in Paul's letter to the Colossians that he wrote in the early 60s AD. In that letter, he even references a specific letter that was written to the Laodicean church, but... We don't have that letter today, unfortunately. And he even references the house church that was hosted by a person named either Nympha or Nymphus there in Laodicea. Today, there's lots of ruins, and you know I love ruins, right? There are tons and tons of ruins there, tons of excavation going on, but all of it testifies to the very great wealth of the city. Now this is an overhead shot of what is there today and the site of ancient Laodicea approximately covers about two square miles. Now the excavations and the archeology span there shows us that the wealth and the booming economy of Laodicea, specifically in the first century, came from a number of factors. The first one is that Laodicea rested on the crossroads, a crossroad of three major trade routes. You had one road that went east to Ephesus, as I mentioned. You had one that went northwest up through Philadelphia and Sardis. And then you had the road east to the other side of Turkey and down into the Holy Land. 
Now, in Laodicea, they had this main road through the middle of the city that was paved with marble and lined with pillars, and you could see that today if you take a trip over there. Their streets were lined with marble, okay? Pretty rich place. Now, on top of that, the wealth that came through Laodicea, um, the, wealth brought, uh, the wealth brought in through all this trade allowed the cities to really indulge in the entertainment, in, in entertainment and the arts. And so Laodicea is known to have the largest stadium for chariot races in Asia Minor down, down on the south side of the city. They also had not one, but two huge amphitheaters on the north side of the city, both of which have been uh, um, partially excavated, but the one on the left has actually been fully restored in the last few years, and on the, the other larger one on the north side of the city is still partially excavated. They indulged in pampering and comforts there in Laodicea. They had not one, not two, but three bathhouses there in the city that have been uncovered. And due to the influx of trade, they had three agoras. And if you remember that word, that's the uh, ancient word for marketplace. They had three major marketplaces there in Laodicea. And then additionally, on the north side of the city, they had one sacred agora, which was a giant marketplace full of temples. And if you go there today, you could see the ruins of the temples to Athena and the temples to Zeus and so many others. But on top of that, right smack in the middle of the city, they had a bank, which Laodicea was well known for because this bank served as the central bank for the entire region, and you can see the ruins of that bank today. Now, the city also um, was highly... uh, produced a highly valued shiny black wool from herds of sheep that were local to the area. So they were well known for expensive clothing and fancy clothing. And on top of that, they were also well known for having a medical school there, a place of medical study that was world renowned as a place that was well versed in anatomy. But they were especially famous for ophthalmology. And if you don't know what that is, that's the study of the eye, your eye doctors. And so Laodicea, according to multiple ancient sources, was actually famous for this eye salve that they made from powdered stone in the area. And they would make this goop that they would put into people's eyes. And people would travel from all over the world to come to this medical school to get the eye goop. And it was said to heal people's sight and vision. So Laodicea was two square miles of just magnificent buildings of shining marble, well-maintained streets, massive city gates, and due to their wealth, fabulous wealth, and due to their influence, they had the honor of being known as a free city from the Roman Empire. The designation of free city was a place where where Rome basically said, we're going to let you be largely independent. You're going to be largely free from our influence because you are just so self-sufficient. You don't even need Rome. And so Laodicea was known as this free city. Now, according to digs and archaeology there in the area, um, Laodicea was damaged by multiple earthquakes through the uh, first century uh, B.C. and first century A.D. In 27 B.C., there was an earthquake that damaged the city. 17 A.D., the one we've talked about in Philadelphia and Sardis, that also um, damaged Laodicea. There was another earthquake in 47 A.D., and then in 60 A.D., there was a massive, massive earthquake that actually leveled the entire city. And what we know from histo- uh, histories is that Rome came in like they did with Philadelphia and other cities and said, hey, the devastation is so bad, we are willing to waive your taxes for a number of years. You don't owe Rome any tribute, any money. But according to histories, Laodicea said, nah, we're good. We don't need your help, Rome. That's how rich we are. We'll rebuild our own city out of our own pockets. In fact, Tacitus, a Roman historian who lived from 56 AD to 120 AD, said Laodicea arose from the ruins by strength of her own resources and with no help from us. So the people of Laodicea were self-confident, self-sufficient, elite, had all they needed and needed no help from anybody. And they were very, very proud of that fact. So where Thyatira, if you remember, was a very blue-collar town. Laodicea was a very white-collar town. Laodicea was Wall Street, Rodeo Drive, and the Mayo Clinic of its day, all wrapped in one place. The problem for the church is that the attitudes of the secular culture there in Laodicea 
had affected them as well. And so to this church, Jesus says, write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the amen and the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. Now, if you remember from the previous six letters, um, Jesus borrowed either directly or indirectly from the vision he gave John of himself in chapter one and opened the letter with that. He would introduce himself to that particular church he was writing to with a portion of his vision for chapter one because that that element of his character and who he was tied directly into the problem and the solution of those particular churches. Here, incidentally, this is the only one where Jesus doesn't borrow from his vision in chapter one, but still uses important titles pertaining to the need of the church there in Laodicea. So he opens up and he says, thus says the amen. Right, some of us love that word amen. Some of us during church services and worship can get really excited and amen and amen and amen. Generally, that doesn't bother me, but sometimes people can get really excited and there's just a little bit too many amens while you're going, right? But we say that word, we end our prayers with amen, right? We, we use this phrase and that whole idea of amen, the word is simply a strong affirmation and acceptance of the truth of something. That's what the word amen means. A strong affirmation and acceptance of the truth of something. And so you'll see in, in uh, some of the older translations of scripture, sometimes people would start out and Jesus would start out, verily, verily, I tell you the truth, right? That word verily is that same word, amen, amen, I tell you the truth. It's the idea of testifying to the truth of something, saying that I'm speaking to you truthfully or what I'm saying is true and so therefore accepted as such. In the Old Testament, you could read many places where God would speak a truth and the people would respond with, amen, right? It's true and we accept it as such. In Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16, it says this, whoever asks for a blessing in the land will speak, will ask for a blessing by the God of truth. And whoever swears in the land will swear by the God of truth. That word truth that we have in our English Bible is actually the Hebrew word, amen. So the idea there is that God is the God of truth. God is the God of amen, right? He is the, the faithful and true one. And then when we go to the New Testament, what did Jesus say about himself? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And in that statement here, coupled through the whole counsel of God's word, we see again Jesus' I am God. I am God. Then he goes on to say, I am the faithful and true witness. And so as truth, Jesus is introducing him here, himself here as one who can only speak truth. Jesus isn't a liar, and what he's about to say to this church is true, as hard as it might be to hear. And that's a wonderful thing about our Lord, and a wonderful thing about the study of God's word. Jesus speaks what we need to hear, not what we want to hear, in most cases, right? Really, in all cases. He speaks with compassion, he speaks with love, but when God comes to us with a critique, with something that's like, look, I have this again, so I need to change, it could sometimes feel harsh and difficult. It could sometimes feel hurtful. But it's always true when it comes from the Lord because it's from the God of truth. Now, we don't always walk like that, right? We don't always speak that way. I've heard this story, and you may have heard this story before, and I don't mean it to be offensive, but I heard a story once of a husband and wife got in a fight about um, talking to each other, and the wife was like, I just want you to just speak the truth plainly. Like, don't, don't dance around stuff. Just be honest with me. Speak truth to me. And so a couple nights later, she came out, and she goes, does this dress make me look fat? And he goes, it's not the dress. <laughs> not wise. Not wise. Not wisdom. Um, and so... That's not how Jesus speaks to us, right? He speaks to us in true love and compassion and wisdom, but what he does say to the Laodicean church here is the truth about their condition, the truth about their nakedness, the truth about their spiritual um, um, just darkness in this moment, and it's pretty graphic, and it's to the point, but it's the loving and necessary thing to do. And so he goes on to say that he's the originator of God's creation, now, I love this particular translation because in other translations, it says that he is the beginning 
of God's creation, right? The Greek word that's translated originator in the CSB in other translations is sometimes the beginning. And, and my challenge with that is sometimes cults, um, not sometimes, a lot, they, they, they take that and they go, see, Jesus is the beginning of creation. The Bible says that he was a created being and he's not God, that he was made. He was the beginning of creation. And unfortunately, that's just not what the Greek word means. That's a misunderstanding of what that Greek word means. In the Greek, that word for originator is arche. It's spelled archie is what it's spelled as. And it simply means an agent that is the cause of something. So Jesus is the agent that causes what? Creation. He is the cause of everything. In this, in this place, Laodicea, that's receiving this letter, very proud of themselves, very proud of what they have accomplished, what they have caused, what they have put together, what they have done and what they know. Jesus is introducing himself to this church and saying, I am the one that caused everything that exists to exist. I am the one who created everything, including you, your gifts, your talents, the money you have. I originate, I was the originator of all of its creation. Everything you rely on, I created. And so it would behoove you to place your confidence in me and not those things. So he goes on in verse 15. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor, or hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. As a young kid who went to church camp and didn't really know the Lord, um, but was at camp and at different studies, this is one of the verses that I never forgot because I was like, the word vomit is in the Bible? Wow, that's cool, you know? Um, but what he's saying here, again, like the other churches, I know your works. I know you. I know all about you. I know your thought, your intention, your motivation. I know everything behind who you are and what you do and why you do it, and he has nothing good to say about it. Now, this whole hot and cold thing here, okay, let's address that really, really quick. Now, Laodicea, um, although being known for wealth and the beauty of their streets and their bank and their medical school and the fancy clothing and the money, all of that, they were also known for a pretty remarkable plumbing feat because despite all they did have, they had a very poor water supply. No hot springs local to them, no cold mountain water source local to them. And this was a problem. Now Colossae, which is 10 miles east of Laodicea, set at the foot of some huge mountains and so Colossae had wonderful snow melt and runoff. And so Colossae was known for having this wonderfully refreshing cold water, right? It was just mm, so good, right? Now then Hierapolis, which was, which was six miles north of Laodicea, they were known for having these wonderful natural hot springs. And so they had these hot, soothing baths, right? Natural saunas. And, and these hot springs were like good for healing and comfort and, and all of this. And so what Laodicea did is they built aqueducts from both places. This elaborate piping system going from 10 miles from Colossae, six miles from Heriopolis, to bring the cold water and the hot water into Laodicea so that the people there who thought, well, of course, we're Laodicea, right? We get to enjoy the luxuries of life. They wanted to enjoy the hot and cold water themselves. And so this piping had reservoirs along the way, and in the city itself, there was actually three distribution tanks because um, it was just a very elaborate water system. And you see the picture there is all these different pipes that have been discovered embedded into different uh, parts of the architecture there in Laodicea. Now the water system was so important that there's been um, an inscription found written in Greek on a marble block dated to 114 AD. And on this block, this inscription actually records the law, the water law for the city of Laodicea and the use of that water. And then there was a fountain apparently to the emperor. So it was basically like, okay, this is how we use the water here because it's so hard to get the water to our city. Now there were expensive penalties for polluting the water supply really expensive penalties for damaging any of the pipes. And then they had specific rules for the officials, the water officials, the people in charge of the water system. If they let someone steal water or they let someone you know, get more than their share, there were huge fines. In fact, um, in this inscription it said, any water officials allowing the stealing of water carried a penalty 
of what is today's equivalent, $200,000. That was the penalty for letting someone steal water there in Laodicea. So getting water there was, was very important to, to this place and, and maintaining control of it. The problem was is that what the um, archaeologists and stuff have discovered in these pipes in the distance and stuff is as the water traveled through these pipes from Colossae and Heriopolis, the temperature from both directions would become lukewarm. The hot water from Heriopolis would cool down and become lukewarm. The cold, refreshing water from Colossae would warm up and become lukewarm. On top of that, what they have found inside those pipes is a bunch of mineral and calcium deposits. And so not only would the temperature of the water become lukewarm, but then it would get a nasty flavor to it. If you've ever had nasty water, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's like, what's in your pipes? This is gross. So just whatever you're thinking right now with nasty water, that, that, keep that thought, okay? But the idea is the, the picture that Jesus is painting in this letter to this church, very, very familiar to the Laodicean Christians. Now, I have commonly heard throughout my Christian walk, and I've even said it myself in the past, that hot and cold here is a reference to spiritual temperature, right? The idea of hot is like, you're, you're hot, you're on fire, you're zealous for Jesus, you're so fired up and excited for him. And then conversely, cold is, oh, you're, you're spiritually cold, you're spiritually frozen. In some cases, people go, it's, you're, you're not even saved, right? You're just, you're just cold. Um, and then, you know, Jesus goes on to say lukewarm. And so people go, so hot, on fire for Jesus, cold, spiritually dead, but lukewarm. You're saved, but, but you're not really living for Jesus. Um, the challenge with that is what Jesus says there. I wish you were cold or hot. The conclusions that I've heard and I've even taught in the past is that Jesus would rather you be unsaved than saved and lukewarm. That doesn't jive with the rest of Scripture. Um, and then on top of that, after looking into the historical water situation at Laodicea, I don't believe that's a, a proper um, interpretation of the hot and cold. Um, because both the hot and cold water in Laodicea, both of them were good things. Both of them were positive, beneficial things to the people. As I said, the hot water, right, uh, was intent to be great for soothing baths and healing and all that. And the cold water was supposed to be refreshing and satisfying and also great for aching muscles and such. And so what I believe Jesus is saying here when he says, look, you're neither hot nor cold, and I wish you were hot or cold, is what he's saying to this church is, look, I wish your works had some beneficial, positive effect there in Laodicea, but they don't. Your Christianity isn't bringing spiritual healing or soothing hurts or soothing aches or bringing refreshment or peace or anything to the city there. It's doing nothing. You may be there claiming the name of Christ as a, as a Christian group there in Laodicea, but much like the tepid, lukewarm, gross, unsatisfying water there in Laodicea, the people of Laodicea look at your Christianity and they go, eh, what you have to offer isn't all that satisfying. What you have to offer that isn't all that refreshing. In fact, your works, the way you guys live as Christians, demonstrate that, that, that you really don't have anything we need or want. There's nothing refreshing and soothing about your Christianity and your Christ. It's just kind of bleh. And bleh Christianity, unfortunately, is a very comfortable way for many Christians to live their Christianity. You know, I'm saved. I've confessed Jesus as my Lord and Savior, yeah. You know, I confess to love Jesus, yeah, but, but the way I live my life, and I'm not talking about directly sinful behavior, I'm talking about the way, the way I live um, in, in what, I, what are the priorities of my life, what I put my trust in, what I prioritize in how I live, um, none of that shows the world that Jesus is my all in all. Jesus is my everything. Jesus is my source. Jesus is my confidence. And the result is the world then doesn't see a need for Jesus because, well, it seems like you don't have a need for Jesus. Like you know him. He's your God. He's your Savior. But, but you don't depend on him for everything in life. And the world's like, well, if you don't need to depend on him, neither do we. So why are you telling me I need Jesus? It's lukewarm. It's, it's the idea of, 
of, and, and, we, and we've all gone to this, myself included, so I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers here, but we go through periods of our life where, you know, we don't go to prayer first in every situation. We preach Jesus is the answer, God has the answer, talk to him, but, but we don't do that. And so others don't see the value of prayer, how it might be a blessing to them to be able to talk to God about their challenges and problems and beseech the God of the universe to intervene on their behalf. Or we don't ever talk about God's word or what God's showing me in his word and speaking to me through it. And so the result is the world around us. You know, if the word isn't important to you, why should it ever be important to me? Or, or people that, that, that have a habit of, of skipping church, right? Skipping the gathering together of the believers. Now, again, there are plenty of times and plenty of reasons why, why that's a normal, fine thing to do, right? But when it comes to the fact of, like, I'm just skipping church because, eh, I just don't really want to go, and eh, 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 or I'm skipping gathering together with other believers, well, if that's how we live, and if gathering together as the church is not a priority to you, why would it ever be to the unsaved you're preaching to? Bleh, Christians, lukewarm Christians, they're, they're Christians who, who know Jesus. I'm, I'm not questioning the salvational aspect of that, but they don't take Jesus or his word or sin or the lost world seriously. They don't really take it seriously. It's just kind of, whatever, I'm good, lukewarm. Not offering anything that's real satisfying to anybody, and so the living of their faith is what, Whatever. And the result of that is their witness is non-existent because they have nothing of real value to share. After all, they're saved, but yeah, they only read their Bible once a week when they're here at church, so they have nothing in the Word to share with anybody. And, and, and they're not praying, so they're not seeing answered prayer, so they have no testimony to share with anybody. And then when they go to share with somebody about Jesus, what, what comes across is, well, you're not real excited about it, and the reality is, is well, yeah, kind of not, because I'm not really experiencing the vibrancy of this Christian life. And what does Jesus say? I will vomit you from my mouth, <laughs> like, like that gross water. Now, again, I don't believe this is a picture of, like, you're going to lose your salvation, what Jesus is trying to communicate is, much like getting a glass of that Laodicean water and going, oh my gosh, it's just so hot today, I want a refreshing drink. I won't make that sound again because I know that messes with some people. <laughs> or much like, oh, I'm just <laughs> waiting for a hot cup of tea and oh, it's room temperature. Right? It, it, it's much like that experience. Jesus says, it's, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. It's in a sense of it, 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 it makes me sick because a, a lukewarm Christian, what I believe this letter is getting at is a lukewarm Christian causes the lost to look at Christianity like it has nothing to offer them. And that makes Jesus sick. Our faith is to be lived in such a way. And, and we're encouraged throughout Scripture. You know, trust in Jesus and put your faith in him and, 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 and choose obedience to him and, and, and to live in such a way that those without our faith, those who are languishing in fear and tragedy, those who are languishing in hopelessness and discontent and frustration and hurt and heartache, that they would see something in us the way we as God's children approach the ups and downs of life, the way we handle tragedy and celebrate victory, the way we see sin and salvation and all of that, that they would see in our lives, that they would then recognize that something is missing in theirs. The real source of hope, peace, refreshment, satisfaction, joy, and healing. Jesus. But when we don't live in such a way, it can lead someone to conclude, well, Jesus isn't really what you need. He's not really what I need either. And Jesus says, that's gross. Just, that's how he puts it. <laughs> it's gross. It's distasteful. It's sickening that a child of mine would, would, would live in such a way that the world would go, yeah, I don't need Jesus because it doesn't seem like you do either. You may be comfortable living that way, but Jesus once is saying to this church, I want you to know how I feel about it. You're Lord. And I speak truthfully because I love you. 
Now, in verse 17, he kind of gets into, well, how does a believer become this way, right? How, how does a believer become this lukewarm person? He says in verse 17, for you say, I am rich. I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You know, dependence on God, confidence in him, it's the bedrock of how we live out our faith in this world. When we realize we need him for everything, everything, physically, materially, spiritually, emotionally, when we realize we need him, his answers, his way for everything, then that results in us going to him for everything. And that drives all the disciplines of our faith, right? It drives prayer, reading the word, praise, worship, giving, serving, all of it. But for the Laodicean church, they had such material wealth. Well, they didn't have to pray to God for resources. They never had to pray, God, please help us pay the bills. They didn't have to pray that because they were so rich. And just like the citizens of Laodicea, their idea, their attitude was we're able to take care of of ourselves so we don't need anybody or anything. Oh yeah, we don't need Rome. But the problem was is that attitude was turning into we don't need Jesus either. It was starting to turn into neglect on dependence on Jesus. And again, the witness to the lost around them of that neglect on dependence of Jesus was, was, well, if you don't need Jesus... Why should anybody else? You got money, we got money. You have resources, we have resources. We have the same thing and we're doing great. The only difference is this Jesus you keep telling me about, but you don't seem to really depend on him. So if you don't need him, why do I? Self-confidence, self-reliance instead of God-confidence and God-reliance, it leads to a blind arrogance rooted in pride and self-deception. See, because he goes, look, you say you're rich and you're wealthy and you have need of nothing, but you don't realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. This is the danger of prosperity. This is the danger of abundance. This is the danger, right? We all pray, myself included, God, I want enough to pay my bills and keep my car running so I don't have to name it and pat it on the dash every time I try and start it in the morning. And God, I want a great job and I want the promotion and I want the benefit, right? We pray for that abundance. Like, God, bless me. And I don't believe that we have any power to command God to give us abundance like some prosperity preachers, but we do pray, God, bless us, right? Take care of us. And then sometimes he doesn't in the way we're expecting and we might throw a little temper tantrum. (laughs) And it might be because God knows if he blessed you, you would stop praying those prayers. You would stop depending on him. Your confidence would then shift into confidence in yourself and what you have and not confidence in God. He says you don't realize, right? His, his evaluation of the church, very different than their own. We're rich. We're wealthy. We have need of nothing. He goes, nah, quite differently. He calls them wretched. That word wretched means to be a very poor quality. Interesting distinction in a town that had marble streets and everything was name brand and top of the line. You are a very poor quality. You're pitiful. That means deserving of sympathy for one's pathetic condition. You need sympathy. And he says this to a church in a town where it's like, we don't even need the most powerful government in the world. Quite the opposite, Laodicean church. You're pitiful. Poor. Now you might think, oh poor, didn't they just say we're rich? This word doesn't have anything to do with material wealth. It means lacking spiritual worth. He says despite all of your wealth and your material wealth and all the stuff that you have spiritually, you're of little value. He says blind, again, that doesn't mean physically you can't see. The word blind there in the Greek means incapable of comprehending in a place renowned for its medical school and its knowledge and its healing of sight with this eye salve that they had. In this place renowned for all of that, he goes, you think you're smart, but you're incapable of comprehending the reality of your, your situation. And then naked, that simply means without covering. Again, in a place famous for its black shiny wool and its fancy expensive clothing. 
A scathing, truthfully, however, spoken rebuke from the one who knows, who sees, who comprehends, who, who created and provides all. And what I see in this, you know, is, is when we evaluate ourselves apart from God's revelation, his whole revelation, we can always find someone worse than us. And we can always find reasons to have confidence in ourselves. Oh, I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not as evil as that person. I'm not as poor as that person. Especially if we're evaluating our spiritual condition based upon our physical or material condition. But remember Sardis? The place that was so poor, they couldn't even get work in that city. He says, you're poor and destitute, but what did Jesus say to them? But you're rich, spiritually. You're rich in what matters. And that's again the issue here in Laodicea. The world determines success based on houses and cars and clothes and bank accounts and accomplishments, but, but God does not. All of that means very little to him because it's all so temporary. I mean, think about it. What is a big bank account to the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills? What is a big fancy house to the one whose home is the entire universe he created? What is a big fancy car to the one who is everywhere at all times? Doesn't even need to travel. What's an expensive outfit to the one who is light and clothed in righteousness? God cares about us, not our stuff. He cares about our character, not our possessions or even our accomplishments in and of our own efforts. He cares about us, our character, who we are, and how that reflects him to the world around us. The world cares only about the stuff and neglects character, and what happens is they regularly come to the emptiness of it all. It's the witness of our changed lives, willfully lived in obedience to him and his truth and his, wor his word. It's the witness of that that shows the world the difference. But when we trust in the same things the world trusts in, we're just like them. Why on earth would they need, want what we have because it's not having any effect for us. But when we live in total dependence on Christ and, and our confidence is in him and only him and nothing else, the world sees the difference and it opens up a door for us to introduce Jesus to them. So verse 18, he says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, a reference to their banking system, white clothes so that you may be dressed in uh, that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness might, might not be exposed, a reference to their clothing industry, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see a direct reference to their medical school. Again, he's using terms that they'd be familiar with in their culture, but he goes, look, I advise you to buy from me that you may be rich. Didn't he just rebuke them for being rich? Again, different word in the Greek. This word means to be plentifully supplied, not to just amass material wealth, which was the other word. To be plentifully supplied. The idea is here that you would have everything you need. He goes, buy from me that you would have everything you need. You're deceived by your own self-confidence, thinking that what you have is truly what you need, and it's not. And so the language he uses here, he goes, look, since you live in this banking center, right? The bank in Laodicea was the central bank for the whole region. Since you guys think transactionally, since you're rich, since you have investments, since you think in these types of terms, I'm gonna to speak to you that way. Do business with me. Transact with me. Trust and depend on me that your real needs would be met. Not just the outward needs. That instead of being wretched and having a poor quality of character and the resulting poor witness that comes from that, replace that poor quality with, with that of the richest, the, the highest quality. That's what he says, gold refined with fire. As gold was refined, it got purer and purer and more valuable. And he goes, look, come to me, do business with me that I would give you what is of the highest value. And contextually, I believe it's the, the, the character and the resulting witness of their lives as Christians there in Laodicea that your prideful self-reliance would be replaced with God-reliance. Transact with me that your low spiritual worth would be replaced with that which is of high spiritual worth. Transact with me that your blindness, your inability to comprehend what really matters would be replaced with godly understanding, leading to godly priorities in living and leading then to an effective witness in the place that I've planted you. 
Transact with me that your lack of covering, the shameful, shallow, lukewarm exposure of spiritual nakedness would be again replaced with the glory of God and divine righteousness, which is a changed heart, a changed character, a changed way of thinking that again only comes through the transforming power of God. And when the world sees that change, when the world sees that we no longer place our confidence in stuff, in money, in clothing, in in all those things that they place their confidence in, when they see that we no longer place our confidence in ourselves, when they see that their money and their structures and their fancy clothes and their wisdom and learning aren't what we place our trust in, they're not the source of our hope, they're not the source of our satisfaction, they're not the end-all answer to life's problems. When they see that, they'll start to wonder why. They'll start to recognize the shallow tepidness of the worldliness of their lives. They'll see something in us that is truly different, refreshing, healing, and they'll go, what is that? What is that? You have something I'm not getting here. And that's when our witness then opens up that door to start sharing the hope that is in Jesus. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be zealous and repent. I love that, right? He just said something really kind of harsh. You're gonna spit me out of your mouth? Wow, thanks, Jesus. Look, I love you. The, the, the discipline, the rebuke, it's because you're my child, right? Parents discipline their children and God disciplines his. It's a good sign that you're his when you're, when you're convicted by reading his word. It's a good sign that you belong to him when God speaks and you're like, oh, <laughs> that's a good sign. A loving parent will discipline and correct their kids so that they'll grow healthy. And as God loves his children, he does the same thing. And he loves us so very much. It's, over, it's demonstrated over and over again throughout his word. He loves his kids. And so he says, be zealous. Here's what's interesting. That word zealous, it means to be intensely serious about something. Remember earlier when I said, bleh, Christians. Lukewarm Christians, they don't take Jesus or his word or sin or the lost world seriously. What is Jesus saying here now? Change that. Start taking it seriously. It doesn't mean to be a joyless, dark cloud of misery. It just means take it seriously. Take your life seriously and how your life then affects others seriously. Take your witness seriously. Take what Jesus says about how he wants you to live seriously. Take the fact that when we're not seriously. And then he says repent, which means to change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of your thoughts and attitude. And again, that's one I don't think we can do on our own. And we say, Jesus, I have to depend on you for that. Please change my heart. Please change my mind that I would be the person you've called me to be. Verse 20, see, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. If you remember the letter to the church in Philadelphia, they had an open door of opportunity for the gospel, for witnessing, for outreach, and, and God was inviting them to step through it. He's like, look, you guys are oppressed, things are tough, but, but the fact that you keep my word and the fact that you haven't denied my name by life, living, lifestyle, decisions, priority, all of that, the fact that you haven't done that, the door is wide open for evangelism. Step through. But Laodicea had shut that door and didn't even know it. Like I said, because what the world was seeing is a church of Christians who, well, they didn't pray much anymore because they didn't have to. They had so much money. I mean, they didn't really have to pray for anything because look what we can accomplish on our own. The church, I've been like, we haven't actually praised him in Thanksgiving for a while. Well, because we provided for ourselves. So we're just thanking ourselves and patting ourselves on the back. I mean, after all, look how talented I am and look how gifted I am and look how well I'm doing in my business and look how, you know, and, 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 and the focus was not like God gave me gifts. It became, look at me. Look how good I'm doing. Forgetting that God gave him the gifts and the talents and the ability. And so... They thought they were vibrant, but their witness to the world was, no, thank you, Jesus, we're fine. We don't need you. We don't need to depend on you. And the world around them said, we agree with that. And likewise felt no need to trust in Jesus for themselves. 
He says, but if you open the door, I will come in and eat with you. This is just a picture of fellowship and biblical times. Having a meal together was much more than, than food, right? It was about intimacy. It was about fellowship. It was about community. It was about connection, right? I think the devil has largely destroyed that in our modern times. You know, people rarely eat around the table together as families anymore. At least that's what I hear, right? It's like grab your food and go get on your phone or the TV in your own room in your own place, right? And everybody just scatters, and, and, and we're missing that time. It's like, no, no, let's, we're going to come together and shut off devices and talk and connect and have intimacy together. And Jesus wants that closeness and that connection with us because he wants to supply our needs, not necessarily what we think we need, but what we really need. And what we really need, he wants to supply is a changed heart and the character and the trust in him and all that comes from fellowship and closeness with Jesus. Now this verse, I just want to touch on real quick here. This verse is often used very evangelically, right? It's a very famous evangelical verse. Jesus is standing at the door knocking, and, and he says, if you hear him, open the door, and he'll let you in, right? And I, I don't necessarily have a problem with it being used evangelically, because it's a great message in that sense. Um, but we can't miss who he's talking to here. Jesus is writing to saved believers, children in his family, not unbelievers, this verse is not so much evangelical as it is ecclesiastical. It's a letter to the church. He's saying this to believers. Interesting, right? He's talking to his kids who have shut their dad out of the church to go it on their own. Not knowing that while everything on the outside might look polished and promising inside, well, they're just gross. Thinking, look how great we're doing. While Jesus is on the outside knocking saying, can I come in? We're not even close anymore. Now that raises a question, can you truly be saved and Jesus be on the outside knocking, asking to be let in, right? Well, I was thinking about that question and um, one of our staff members had this really cool just um, illustration of it and I was like, oh yeah, duh. Um, married couples can sometimes shut each other out, right? They might get in a fight, they might drift, they might have seasons where they're not communicating, they're not as close. And, and, and so you can have those situations where one married couple might be estranged from the other and you could literally have a situation where one is at the door knocking. Can I come in? Are they not married anymore? No, they're still married. They're just estranged. And so the church, knowing, knowing that the church is the bride of Christ, we see Jesus here just simply asking his bride, hey, can we rekindle our bond? Can we rekindle our fellowship? They weren't representing Jesus at all, but they were so bleh, so lukewarm in their faith walk that every unbeliever around them couldn't see anything hopeful, soothing, satisfying, or refreshing about Jesus or a relationship with him. And it was because the church had shut Jesus out, their dependence on him for everything. They weren't living in fellowship with him either, so they couldn't tell anybody about fellowship with him. So Jesus is speaking to you this morning. If you hear his voice, if the conviction of the Holy Spirit is upon you as his child, listen. I'm talking to Christians here today, okay? <laughs> if the Holy Spirit is knocking on your heart right now about the fact that maybe you have shut him out, you're his kid, you're still in relationship with him, but fellowship has been broken because you've started trusting in everything else but Jesus, and that's had a negative effect not just on your own life, but on your witness. If he is speaking to you, open the door. Invite Jesus back into rulership of your life, back into your decision-making, back into your living, back into the priority of everything. Cultivate God-dependence that you may not have been cultivating in a while. Recultivate all that, your reliance on him in all things at all times looking at the gifts and the talents that you have and going, this isn't me, God gave this to me, so I trust in him and his calling on my life or his enabling on my life. Right, it's in poverty and wealth and in sickness and in health. Sounds like marriage vows, doesn't it? That regardless of the outward provision that you have in your life or the perceived value of that inwardly, you would have an abundance of what matters most. And that's a radical confidence in Christ and his character and a witness that is born of a vibrant relationship with him. 
So we'll close out here real quick. To the one who conquers, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Now back in verse 10 of chapter three here, um, there was a reference uh, to the Philadelphian church about being uh, saved from the hour of testing, the hour of tribulation. And I believe that's a reference to the tribulation period. Um, here, this verse 21 in Revelation chapter three to Laodicea, I believe is a reference to the millennium. And the millennium is a period of time uh, that is referred to as a thousand year reign of Christ here on earth after his second coming. And I believe it's a reference to that because in Revelation chapter 20 verse four, we read this. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God who had not worshiped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. I believe that's a reference to people who accept Christ during the tribulation period. But he closes verse four and he said, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Uh, we'll deal with that when we get there, okay? But in closing, you know, I just want to point out the harshest rebuke from Jesus of all the seven churches came not from theological and dogmatic coldness that we saw in Ephesus. It came not from letting moral compromise into the church that we saw in Pergamum. It comes not from willfully going out and engaging in corrupt behavior out of self-preservation that we saw in Thyatira. It comes not from the hypocrisy of a false reputation of spiritual life while being really spiritually dead that we saw in Sardis. The harshest rebuke Jesus has for these churches comes from the lukewarm life of Christians who would damage the reputation of Christ. Who he is, what he can do, and what he offers to the lost and the suffering and the hopeless and the hurting. By professing his name, by claiming to be his kids, but living as if he is in the absolutely necessary and needed thing for everything in life. We need Jesus. We know that. We profess it, but there may be some who have gotten so caught up maybe in a time of plenty or in a time of just, I'm okay, things are good, that you've forgotten the necessity of and radical dependence on Jesus Christ. And that is damaging the name of Christ to the unsaved around you. And Jesus says, look, I'm just going to be honest. I love you enough to say that makes me sick. That makes me sick. So please start taking me seriously again. Make a change today. Open the door. Let's rekindle our close fellowship that you would depend on me and nothing else. That you would look at all the abundance or the prosperity or the okayness around you and go, that's because of Jesus and nothing else. He says, I'm knocking. Open the door and let me in. Let's rekindle our fellowship. If he's speaking to you today, do that. Do that. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you, God, for your word, and we thank you for these letters to the churches, God. Lord, they have been very insightful and challenging and encouraging, God, and Lord, we know that these letters are, were written to, to seven real churches of the time, Lord, but we also know that they represent um, periods of history throughout, throughout the, the church's existence, and we know that they also represent um, experiences, time periods in our own lives as individual Christians, things we can go through one at a time or all at the same time, Lord. So we thank you, God, for speaking into our lives these truths, Lord. But God, this last letter, God, is, um, is, it's hard. It's difficult. But Lord, we, we say that we invite you into our lives, that you would evaluate us, that you would reveal to us what, what, is, what is sinful, what is wrong, what is off. God, we, we, we say that. And God, this is an opportunity to, to live that, Lord. To, Lord, step in front of you and realize that, that we might be spiritually naked. That just like the emperor who had no clothes, Lord, we think we're wearing something. We think we're wearing righteousness. And you're like, no, you're actually exposed. And so, Lord, we confess, um, confess that in our lives, Lord, sin in our lives. God, we confess where we've been trusting in everything but you. Or at least we trust in you, but you're the last thing on our list, God. Lord, help us to, to not cause our witness to be 
affected negatively by the fact that we trust in riches and we trust in provision and in material um, things being supplied, that we would trust in what we have and in, in, in our ability and our own accomplishments, Lord. But instead, we would be solely focused and dependent on you for everything. And that God, as the world sees that, and they go through trial, and they go through tragedy, and they go through difficulty, and they realize the emptiness of those worldly things they're trusting in. God, that as they see us trusting in you and having peace that surpasses all understanding and joy unspeakable, that that door would open, God, to share the gospel with them. But it would be a door that as that door opens, they would look inside and they would see us sitting in fellowship with you, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and that they would be welcomed and invited into that relationship to have what we have. So Lord, bless us, speak to us, change us if need be, God. Lord, do a work in our lives that we would just accurately and boldly and confidently in you represent you to the world around us because they need you so bad. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, let's worship.